Well, so here we are. We, we've just finished going through the book of 1 Peter in, in Scripture, and it feels good to finish, finish a book. And pretty soon we'll be rolling right into 2 Peter, which covers a lot of different material, but it's still incredibly useful and good. And here at the church, we have a very high view of the Word of God, and so we study it like it's true, like it, like it matters, all of it, verse by verse, as through a microscope. That being said, when you get the opportunity, it's so nice to, from time to time, take a step back and view the scriptures as through a telescope. Just get that big picture. And over the next two weeks, we have an opportunity to do that before we begin Second Peter. And that's what we're going to be doing, looking at the big picture of scripture. And in particular, I want to show you the big picture of the glory of God in scripture. Here's the thing. A couple of months ago, we, we studied the glory of God for two weeks during our little Wednesday night small group time, and it was a good time studying the glory of God. It's like viewing a, a breathtaking sunset. You just you never tire of looking at it. It just marvels you every time. And I knew right then when we had this little study that I wanted to go back, I wanted to return to this subject and take these little you know, informal Bible studies and, and transform them to full-length sermons so that the entire congregation could get a view of this landscape of God's glory and appreciate it. I don't think there's anything more breathtaking to behold than the glory of God in Scripture. And so let me ask you to start, when was the last time you stopped your life and just thought on God? I mean, seriously, thought about who he is. Who who is this God? You think you know him, but do you really know him? We have our nice little box that we put God in with four neat walls and a ceiling and a a floor. We've got it all figured out. God is loving and just and and gracious and forgiving and and righteous and omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. We've got it all figured out. We know know God. We we know all about him. He's walled in. Really, do you really think you have God figured out? And do you see how ridiculous that is? That's what we think when we even do stop and think about him. Most of the time, however, we're just so busy living and doing stuff, going here, going there. We never stop to think about who he is, but how your life would change if you just stopped from time to time, stopped everything and just thought on him. Who is he? God is so big, so majestic, so mysterious. and We have all these attributes of God, and they're all true. The Bible teaches them, but, but how much more is there to God that we don't know? How many attributes does he have that we cannot even comprehend? And do you know that there are numberless things about God that we we can never know? I'm not talking about the things that we don't know. I'm talking about the things that we can never know. We just can simply never know. Because the, the finite can never entirely grasp the infinite. It's not possible. It can't even get close. That's why I always find it so ridiculous when I hear people reject God because... He doesn't pass muster in their, in their teeny little brains compared to him. They say, no, if God were really loving, he couldn't do something like that. If God were really just, he wouldn't do that. And they've got it figured out. They've got it all figured out. They've got him so nicely tucked away in a little box. Listen, you, you do not have God figured out. And, and guess what? You never will. You never will. But that's not a bad thing. If you could fully grasp God, he wouldn't be much of a God. 
That being said, although we cannot know all of God, it's not possible, we can know some of him. And even the little bit that he has revealed to us in the Bible, it's enough to really blow us away for all of eternity. We have a big enough picture of his glory to feast on forever. And I'm telling you, if you just stop your your hectic lives for just a moment to think on him, who he really is, it's going to change you. It's going to put everything in perspective. Put everything in its proper place. And I think no picture of who God is will impact you as much as that of his glory. What is the glory of God? Do you, do you really know? Do you understand this? We have all these Christian catchphrases that we use, and I think we just take them for granted. You know, we say, like, oh, to God be the glory. Or I, just, I want to do all things to the glory of God. Or we tell people, you know, I just want to do whatever gives God the most glory. What is that? What are we saying? How do you even do something to the glory of another person? What does that mean? Does that mean God is lacking some glory? He needs us to, to fill it up? And why is this the most important thing? Why is this at the top of the list? Why should we do all things to his glory? Whatever that means. These are very important questions. We're going to answer them all next week. Next week. Today, I want to go down a different road. And for our time today, I want to tell you a story. It's the story of God's glory. The Bible speaks about the glory of God in many ways, but really at the heart of his glory is is God himself. Glory, it's it's not an attribute of God. It's not an attribute. It's just who he is. God in himself, he is glory. God on display, that's his glory. Just God on display is his glory. This is why the Bible oftentimes speaks of the glory of God and God himself interchangeably. When God's glory shows up, God shows up. And that's why I want to expose you to today, this concept of God's glory being his presence. God's presence is his glory. The true glory of God is the presence of God. You might be wondering, though, what? I thought God was everywhere present, so how does that work? Well, God is indeed omnipresent, everywhere present. But he's not present in all places in the same way. For instance, is God present in hell? Absolutely, he's present in hell. But not in the same way that he is present in heaven. In hell, God is present to judge, to pour out his wrath, to make his wrath known. But in heaven, he is present, of course, to bless. And so although God is indeed everywhere, the Bible speaks of something called his special presence. He has this special presence, and that special presence is his glory. It is his glory. This may be something you've never thought about before or heard about before, but this is why I want to expose it to you this morning. The Bible records several encounters people have had with God's special presence, his glory. But in reality, the entire story of the Bible is the story of God's special presence among his creation. And when you see this, I know you haven't seen it yet, but when you do, it really changes you. It's going to take your whole understanding of God to the next level, your understanding of man to the next level, your understanding of your own life's purpose to the next level. And of course, we can't get ahead of ourselves. This story, it's all over the Bible. In fact, you could say this story 
is the Bible. And today in survey fashion from, from Genesis to Revelation, I like doing that from time to time, Genesis to Revelation surveys, I want to tell you this, this story. It's the story of God's glory, his special presence among his people. We're going to look at a lot of passages of scripture today. Some we'll read, some we'll summarize just for the sake of time. But, but just follow along and track with me and, and spend this time thinking, now, who is this God? We think we know. We know some things, but who is he? What's he doing? I want you to behold his glory among his people. Now, the story of God's glory or his special presence among his people begins, of course, in the Garden of Eden. God created so that his glory might be known. And after Adam and Eve were brought into existence, where do we find God's special presence? Does he just you know, zoom out into outer space, never to be seen again? Is he just hiding at the center of the earth? No. After God creates, he, he dwells with his creation, with Adam and Eve. In some way, God manifests his special presence with Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 says, even walking with them in this new and perfect world. God, God's with them. He created them and he's with them, dwelling with them. What amazing access man had to God before sin entered the world. I mean, here is he's God Almighty. He's the God of the universe. Yet Adam and Eve could, could walk with him and fellowship with him and approach him, uh, even as a child could approach his father. Just imagine if you were, you were the child of the president. It's what a privilege. Well, you have total access to the White House. You can go in any room you want. You can explore. You can play hide and seek. You can just go anywhere you want. But more than that, you have total access to the president himself. You can just just barge in unannounced. You don't need an appointment. He's your father. You just have access to him. Most people will never even meet the president. They have just totally cut off from his presence. But man, before sin, we had this just total access and this sweet fellowship with God himself. As you already know, though, that sin changed things. After Adam and Eve plunged humanity into sin, many things changed, one being their access to God. Now they were removed, they were, they were cut off, they were separate, and separated from the glory of God, from his presence. They were unholy. They had to be removed from his holy presence. They could not be with God because sin created this massive rift between them and God that they, they just can't cross. We can't cross. Pick any star in the sky, anyone, it doesn't matter, and you have no hope of ever reaching it. There's no hope. Why? The distance is just too great. And so it is with, with us and God because of sin. After sin, all people are hopelessly separated from God's glory, from his goodness, from his special presence. You're just, you can't be there. You're too far away now. And, and understand this, the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward, that the whole thing is about God restoring his creation, mending this rift so that his people might be with him again. Everything God does in scripture, we see him acting to bring us back into the presence of his glory. That's just why he's doing all of this. We think of the Bible as the story of redemption, and, and it is, but 
Right? In another sense, it's the story of God bringing us back into his glorious presence. Well, now I want us to fast forward a little bit to the time of the Exodus when God really moves things along. God himself, he never moved away from us. We moved away from him because of our sin. But God is now, he's really putting into practice this plan to, to bring us back to himself, to draw us back into his presence. And he begins this plan by drawing to himself one nation, and that is Israel. You know the story of the Exodus, how God delivered them from bondage in Egypt and, and formed them into a people for himself. But now God, he's doing something different here. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, God, he's making his special presence known on the earth among a people. No other people had this privilege of having God with them. So what was this like? How how was God's glory seen among them? How, How did they view and see God who was coming down to them? Well, I want us to transport ourselves back into their sandals and to really get down to the dust of that Sinai wilderness and see that this experience of God coming down to them. So take your Bibles, open them to start with Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. I mentioned some passages we'll read, some we'll just... Summarize, but I want you to see this in Exodus chapter 19. You have this horde of Israelites, some some two million people, and they're hightailing it out of Egypt, delivered by the hand of God, and and they knew this God, or at least they thought they did. They they thought they knew this God who was delivering them. They had witnessed the ten plagues, after all, and if you remember, during the Exodus, God's glory literally led them out. God appeared to them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, guiding them and protecting the people and leading them out of Egypt. God was not the cloud, and God was not the fire. But he just wanted some, some way to make his special presence known and seen among the people. But even still, even though they would have seen with their eyes that the cloud and the fire They didn't really know who this God was. They didn't know yet who was delivering them, who they were dealing with. This is before all this revelation had even been given. This is why God told Moses that right after the Exodus, your first stop, where's your first stop going to be? Mount Sinai. Why Mount Sinai? Because they had a divine appointment. God was going to reveal himself, his presence, his glory, his law to the people. He's going to make a covenant with them, saying, look, I I will be your God, you will be my people. He's going to covenant with them. What does that mean, though? Really, he's saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to actually be among you. I'm going to be in your presence. I will dwell with you, protect you, bless you, care for you. You of all peoples, you you get the privilege of seeing the glory of God in your midst. That was his message, basically. God is introducing himself to this people and his special presence is going to come down on Mount Sinai. He's going to visit them and and just show them just a little bit of who he is. It's like meeting a blind date. You're thinking, who's this this person going to be like? What are they going to be like? 
The people, they, they sort of knew this God, but not, not that much. And so they're wondering, this God who just delivered us from Egypt, what's he going to be like? How's he going to show up to visit us? And in Exodus chapter 19, God shows up. Look at verse 16. Here they are all, here the people are all assembled at the base of Mount Sinai. And verse 16, so it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. God is just starting to show up and, and they're all scared for their lives already. Verse 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. They could go no further, by the way, if they if they touched the mountain even. Even if their livestock touched the mountain, they, w- they were to be killed. Because although God was coming near to them, he still was separate. He was still separate from them. Verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. I really wish we had the video of this. And this just intense and violent and loud that there's thunder, that there's lightning flashing down all around you. You think it's going to strike you. That these hurricane-force winds are just tearing this mountain apart. It's shaking, he says, violently shaking. The rocks are just crumbling down. Then there's just fire everywhere. Is is this thing erupting? Is this a volcano? And if you weren't freaked out enough, you hear this eerie trumpet sound that just keeps getting louder and louder and louder until you think you're going to go deaf. What's happening? Nation of Israel? Meet God. He's the God of glory. And he's just showing you just a little bit of his power and his glory. What happens next after this? God speaks to his people. And what are his first words? What what does he say? What are the first things that come out of his mouth as he visits them on Mount Sinai? Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God. Verse 3. You shall have... No other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What's he saying? These are his first words to the people. And it's all about himself. He's just jealous for himself and for his own glory. And for God, that is a good thing. God must be jealous for his own glory because there's nothing else worthy of worship in the whole universe. He must worship and seek his own self. And he's telling them, look, if I'm going to be among you, if I'm going to be your God and to be with you, then you have to worship me. You must worship me alone and give me the glory alone. At this point, the people were getting more than they bargained for. They were literally scared for their lives. It's like being thrown into a den of lions. You're just like, this is not safe. I do not want to be here. That They were scared. They started to back away from the mountain, as we'll see. Look at Exodus 20, verse 18. 
Verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You better believe they, they stood at a distance. They were backing away. Verse 19, then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. People understood that they they were not worthy to be near God. They didn't belong there. And they were right. They they did not belong there with God's presence. God knew this as well, so he uses a mediator, a a go-between. In this case, it's Moses. Moses would go up into the mountain, into the cloud, to God's special presence, to commune with him. God would instruct him over a period of many days. Look now to Exodus chapter 24. Just turn the page to Exodus 24 and look at verse 16. A little bit later, he says, The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses had such a special relationship with God. He had a foretaste of what it was like to be among the glory of God. He couldn't stay on the mountain. He had to go back down. But he had a taste of what it was like to be with God. Now, of course, this is only by God's grace. Moses didn't belong there either, but God was making him stand, causing him to to stand before him, enabling him to be in his presence. There's more to this story, that between Moses and the glory of God. We're going to save that for next week. But I want us to stay on track with the story of God's special presence among his people. And surely this was not what they expected. I bet some of the Israelites, they, they really thought they knew this God who was delivering them from Egypt, but... But they didn't know. They did not have God all figured out. And then his glory showed up and just blew them away. But at least God is back. His presence is among his people again. And that's a good thing. But it's still not quite the same as before. You see, the Israelites don't have the same relationship to God as Adam and Eve did. They they don't have this total access. They don't have that that perfect fellowship with God. Things are different now because of sin. I don't know, maybe you picked up on it. Maybe you're wondering, how could God do this? How could he even come down and dwell with this people when they're still sinful? They're still unholy. How can God even get this close? And the answer is he can't. Unless something is done about their sins, which separate them from him. And this is why God, at this time, he gives them the sacrificial system as a means of covering their sins so that they might be able to draw near to him. And furthermore, this is why God also, at this time, gives to them the tabernacle. The tabernacle, what is that? It's, it's so significant. 
The tabernacle, it's like this meeting place between God and man. It's, it's the common ground. It's the only common ground they have where they can, they can come together. You know, right now, you know, North Korea, South Korea, they're just totally separated, you know, black and white. There, there's nothing common between them, except this little sliver of dirt in between, this demilitarized zone, where they can come together and actually share these blue buildings. They can actually meet together. But that's it. It's the only common ground they have where they can interface together. That, that's like the tabernacle. You see, God's over here, and he's perfectly holy, full of glory, and you're over there, and you're not holy, and you can't go to him. You cannot get to him. So he creates this tabernacle, this, this building, this place, and he says, look, you come here. You come to me, bring your sacrifices, cover your sins, and then you can get close. You can get close to me. You can't come inside. You can't come inside, but you can get close to me. You can draw near, and you can worship. That was a tabernacle. That's what it was for. It was this portable temple. It went with the people wherever they went. And God, by his grace, he made his special presence dwell there. Of course, like the God of the universe could be contained anywhere. He didn't live there. But he told them, look, let's meet here. I'm going to place my special presence here. Let's meet here. You come to me. The whole structure and design of this building was created to show the nearness of God's glory, but also the separateness. Still separate. It was through the tabernacle that God let his presence be known among his people. Wherever they went, they were to pack up the tabernacle, take it with them, and when they stopped, unpack it, and place it at the very center of their camp. And then the 12 tribes of Israel were to arrange themselves around the tabernacle. Three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. Why? So that they would always know and see that God was literally in their midst. He was literally in the middle of them. At the same time, though, the people could not enter the tabernacle. Couldn't go inside. Only the priests could go inside the tabernacle. Even the priests, though, were separated from God's special presence inside. For within the tabernacle, as you know, separated by a veil, was a room. You know what it's called, right? The Holy of Holies. And it was only there where God caused his presence to dwell, but no one could enter, ever. No one could enter, lest they die. Only one person, the high priest, once a year could enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people. So the people were still separate from God's glory. They they were still cut off. They they thought to themselves, God's right there. He's right in the middle of us. I can see the building, but I can't go inside. I can't see him. I can't dwell with him. I'm still separate because of my sin, because of my unholiness. But that being said, this was still a big step. This was a big step. For God was dwelling with his people again. Nothing like this had ever happened since the time of Adam and Eve. God was beginning to restore man to himself, to his presence, his glory. And Israel would know the blessedness that comes from being near the glory of God, just being close to it. They were blessed. 
Well, the book of Exodus ends with the tabernacle being constructed. They finish. And then what happens? Chapter 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God, the, the, the presence of his glory, the cloud descended upon it, filled it, showing that he was arriving. He was there. Wherever they would go, the cloud of God's glory would guide them and protect them and bless them. Now, at this point, I want us to make another jump. Jump forward about 500 years. Israel is in the land, just as God promised, and and they're blessed. They're they're cared for because of God's presence among them. And they realize it's time to build for God a permanent tabernacle, which is called the temple. They're just going to construct the temple. This was built under the direction of King Solomon. And I want you to notice how, how it parallels the tabernacle. So just turn briefly to 1 Kings chapter 8. It's not not too far to the right of Exodus. 1 Kings chapter 8. Just like the tabernacle, the temple symbolized God's presence in their midst. He would make his name and his glory known in the temple. And the people would see him and worship him there alone. The temple was located in Jerusalem, which was the heart of the land, city of David. And all Israel was to stream to it to meet God and to worship him there, his presence among the nation. Yet like before, the people still could not enter the temple. The same veil kept them out from the same Holy of Holies where no one could enter, where God's glory dwelt. But God was still, he was near his people. He was near them, among them. His glory was in their midst. And when the temple was completed, the last brick was laid and everything was finished, what happened? Same thing that happened with the tabernacle. 1 Kings chapter 8. And look at verse 10. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, after they had just finished putting the, the instruments inside, after the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God is with them again, letting them know he's among them. And once again, Israel was marked off as the only people in the world at this time who knew the true God and who had the true God in their presence. You can see Israel's true privilege here. But Israel would not live up to this privilege. For even though the glory of God was among them, they still broke over and over again those first two commandments, among others, but those first two especially. They went after other gods and idols. Now we marvel at the hardness and audacity of Israel. Now how could they trade the glory of God which was in their midst? It's right there. How could they trade that for that which was nothing? But that's what all sin is. Your sin, mine. You're trading God's glory for something else. That's that's just what sin is. And as years went by, Israel sunk further and further into idolatry. Far from their holiness being confirmed, it was denied. And it became clear that this people, they were just too unholy, too sinful, too wicked for God to be among them. 
He couldn't stay. So what happens next in the story? Well, I'm going to summarize this for the sake of time, but we learn something truly shocking from the prophet Ezekiel. We learn that Israel would be judged for their sins, taken captive out of the promised land, and scattered among the nations. That's not the shocking part. That's not the shocking part. By no means is that the worst thing that could happen to Israel. The worst thing that could happen to them would be for God's glory to leave them, for his presence to depart from them. But that's exactly what was about to happen. God gives Israel, or rather Ezekiel, a stunning vision. Ezekiel, he, had, he sees the cloud of God's glory fill the temple like before, but something's different. Wait, wait a second, what's happening? And Ezekiel just stands by and watches as the glory of God leaves the temple. It departs from the temple to the threshold. From the threshold to the east gate. To the east gate, or rather from the east gate to the east mountain, the Mount of Olives, and from there, it's gone. It's gone. The glory had left the people. There's a word for that, Ichabod, no glory. Glory's gone. God just could not be with this people any longer. They were too sinful. And it was their idolatry. They had forsaken God. They, they forsook his glory. And he left. The people were judged, exiled, and scattered because of their sin. When God's glory departed from them, so did his protection. So did his blessing. Seventy years later, the Jews returned to the land. Like God said, they came back. They even started rebuilding the temple, which Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. But things were different. Things were different now. God never came back. The cloud, the glory, never returned. Even when they finished the temple, the cloud didn't fill it. It just never came back. I'm sure to them the silence was deafening. Where's God? Why won't he come back? God, look, we built you a new temple. Just, Just come back but he was never found. But the people had one little ray of hope because even at the end of Ezekiel, God tells him that there will be a day, many years from now, but there will be a day when my glory will return to you. It will come back and be with this people again. And some 600 years after God's glory departed from the people, it came back. Now turn in your Bible to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. The Jews, though they were decimated by God's judgment and removed from his blessing, they still had one hope, and it was the hope of the Messiah. But who would this Messiah be? Who was he? How was he going to come? If they had eyes to see, they would have understood Matthew 1.23, which says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a quote of Isaiah 7.14, by the way. God with us. This Messiah was going to be 
himself come down to be with his people, to save them, to rescue them, to bring them back into his presence. We see this in Matthew. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, of course, jump down to verse 14. And, we, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word, this divine Logos, is Jesus And who is Jesus? He's none other than the eternal God, the Son, come down, taking on humanity. Jesus is God's glory, come down, again. Jesus is God's special presence among his people, dwelling with them in their midst, again. You see this word in verse 14, got to love this. There's no accident. Dwelt. And he dwelt among us. The word literally means to tabernacle with. To, to set up a tabernacle. And John is using this, of course, on purpose. Harkening back to that Old Testament tabernacle, which was what? Again, what was the tabernacle? It was the place where God caused his glory to dwell. It was the place where his people could come to him. And now it's not a place. It's a person. Jesus is this tabernacle, God's glory, dwelling in human flesh. And in him we behold God. Remember what he said? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now though God approaches his people, he dwells with them in a much more personal way, in the person of Christ. And now the people... They're not separate. They could come close. They could draw near to the Son. You you can go to Jesus. You could go to him. Wait a second, though. I I thought that Jesus just looked like any other man. It doesn't seem very glorious. People thought he just looked like an ordinary person. It doesn't seem very glorious. And that is true. For in his first coming, God the Son veiled his glory. And this was for our good, for no person could see his glory and live. Last year, I went on a tour of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, which was amazing. And we stood relatively close to the nuclear reactors. Now, obviously not that close because of security. They don't let you get that close. But normally, you can't even get within miles of those things. So it was, it was really cool to be that close to them. But when you think about it, nobody should be getting anywhere near close to a nuclear reactor because the radiation they give off would kill you. But that's why, obviously, they have to encase them in just this thick cement and lead or whatever to to keep them from harming everyone. Otherwise, anyone who got close would die. And that's like God's glory. It's violent. It's radiant. It's overwhelming. And unless it's veiled, nobody can come close But God wanted people to come close to Jesus. And so he veiled the glory so that they could see him, they could dwell with him, so that he could reveal God to them. And although veiled, though, the glory of God in Jesus still shone through. You can't see the radiation coming out of a nuclear 
reactor, but you can see the power. You can see the effects of the power it produces. And likewise, all can see the divine power and glory wielded by the hands of Jesus. He displayed that divine glory by his acts, his teachings, his miracles, his resurrection. And as John says, this was none other than the glory of the only begotten from the Father. This was God's glory. It was not ordinary glory, man's glory. This was divine glory in Christ. There's more to say on this as well. We'll see that next week. We'll even look at that one time when the veil was ever so slightly lifted from the Messiah. But for now, look, if you want to know God, know Jesus. If you want to see God's glory, just look at Jesus. Truly, through Jesus, God was revealing himself in a way like never before. And through Jesus, God was dwelling with man again. It was almost like in the Garden of Eden. God walking with his people, fellowshipping with them, dwelling with them. But again, still not quite perfect. Not quite the same. It wasn't fully as it should have been. The whole concept of Emmanuel... It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't work. God with us. That should not work. That doesn't belong. God should not be with us, just like he should not have been with Israel, because we're not holy. We're sinful. God should not be with us. This equation can't work because of sin. God with us. But this is why Jesus came, to do something to make this equation work again to enable God to be with us again. That's how the story began, right? God with us. And it was good. God with us. But then sin came in and ruined that and and tore us apart. But now Christ comes to deal with sin and to get us back to the place where we can be with him again. What did Jesus do? You know, I trust. We studied it last Easter Sunday, but he came And he died on the cross to to deal with sin, that sin debt, to pay for it, all of it, and to finally remove your sins from you. Jesus bridged the gap between God and us caused by our sin, that chasm, which we had no hope of crossing, he bridges that, reconciling us. And now through faith and trust in him, God causes us to come to new life, to be washed and forgiven and justified and renewed. And God, totally by his grace, he actually makes us perfectly holy in Christ. He makes us perfectly holy in Christ so that we are able to stand in his glory and belong there. Because of sin, we know, I hope you know, we don't belong As if we were at the foot of the mountain, we don't belong there. But by his grace, through Christ, you can belong there. God will cause you to stand. And look at what access to God the death of Jesus purchased. Remember that I said the body of Jesus was like a veil for his glory. Well, what happened when his veil was torn? When the veil of his flesh was torn, when Jesus died on the cross, remember what else happened? 
at that same moment, Matthew 27, verse 51, the moment he died and cried out his last breath, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Almost like God was doing it. And the symbolism, it's just too obvious. It's just too obvious. God was making known that through the death of Jesus, access to him, to the Holy of Holies, to his glory was open. It's free. It's open now. Remember the veil, it was a constant reminder of sin and of separation. It's the fact that you don't belong. You stay out. You you don't be in here because of this veil. You, You can't be in here. It's a reminder. It it, it condemns you. It judges you. It convicts you. You don't belong. You can't go inside. But in Jesus, the veil was was torn, top to bottom. Almost like God's hands were just ripping it, miraculously, of course. And what's he saying? There's nothing more to separate you. There's nothing that keeps you out anymore. There's no reason you can't come inside. And be with his glory. Now, only in Christ alone, you can enter the Holy of Holies freely, confidently. You can be with God's glory. You can draw near to his presence. Just listen. Don't turn. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. He says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, it's the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance, full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. First time ever. First time ever we get to draw near to God himself and we can belong there. We actually should be there all through what Christ did. We can be there with sincere hearts, with full assurance, with total confidence We can walk right into that holy place and be with God. This is what Christ promises to all who come to him, to all who look to him. This total and free access to God's glory forever. You will face death, but he'll raise you up and he'll bring you to him. One other promise that he makes I want to highlight here. Jesus says that not only will he raise you up, but he'll give you a new body, a transformed body, a glorified body. Why would he do that? Because you're going to need it. And why would you need it? Because of where you're going. And where are you going? You're going into the cloud. You're going into the fire. You're going into... God's glory. Because it's time to see how the story ends. So turn to the end, Revelation 21, end of the line. How does this story end? Revelation chapter 
21, and we'll look at 22 as well. This story started out great. It didn't take very long before the conflict of sin came in, though. This conflict came to a climax on the cross, but Jesus resolved the conflict, and here is that the resolution, the final culmination of the story. Revelation 21, describing what we call heaven, the new heavens, the new earth. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is the end of the story, and it's a good ending. For God, it's mission accomplished. Humanity is restored. The church is saved. We are, we're with him. We're in his glory. We're with his glory. And what's the picture? What has the story been about from the beginning? It's been about being with him. But we're with him. God with us. All of this takes place in this thing called the New Jerusalem. It's a place. What exactly is this thing, though, that this New Jerusalem, this divine city that we are with God? What is it? If you were there on Wednesdays, you know, you know the punchline. Think back to the tabernacle. What was the room where God dwelt? Holy of Holies. Or its dimensions? It was a cube. I believe 10 cubits by 10 by 10. It was a cube. The only cube in the design of the tabernacle. Then comes the temple, Solomon's temple. Holy of Holies, again, a cube. Perfect cube that where God dwelt. Ezekiel's temple, same thing. Holy of Holies, a cube. We come to Revelation, we hear about this new Jerusalem, and it's, it's a mysterious thing, but we know one thing. It's a cube. 1,500 miles cubed. This is the new Holy of Holies. This city is God's new, eternal Holy of Holies. Except now, we're inside. We're on the inside. It's where God is. It's where he always is. But we're inside. And we get to dwell there with him forever. He'll be our God forever. We'll be his people forever. Just dwelling with him. Just being with him. Look down at verse 22 of Revelation 21. Verse 22. He says, I saw no temple in it, this new Jerusalem. No temple. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God. The glory of God has illumined it. And its light is the Lamb. Temple, remember, it was the meeting ground. It was that small sliver of ground where man could approach God. But who needs that anymore? Who needs that? 
It's all common ground. We don't need a, a, meeting, a, a meeting ground anymore. The whole thing is a meeting ground. It's like being the president's kid again. You've just got that total access to the White House. You can go anywhere you want. Total access to the president. You can see him at any time. Turn the page to Revelation 22, the last chapter, and look at verse 3. He says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Well, this is an error. This has got to be a contradiction, right? Because I thought no man can see the face of God and live. But now we're seeing his face. But that's the point. This is extreme, what God is doing for us, what he's bringing us to, changing us, causing us to dwell, and allowing us to be with him in the truest sense of the word. Verse 5, there will no longer be any night, and they will have and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So as you can see, the story ends with us, those in Christ, dwelling with God in a way Adam and Eve never could have imagined. God brings us back and takes us even higher through his grace. I'm telling you, this topic that this idea of the glory of God, it'll change you. It, it can be a life changer. If you get this, if, if you let this lift your thoughts up to glory and just think on who this God is and what he's doing, it changes your life, changes the way you live. How exactly? You know, we'll talk about that next week. I just want you to bask in God's glory. And if you see it, I don't even have to tell you what to do. It's just going to affect you and draw you closer to him. You're going to draw near. And the closer you get to God, the more you are conformed to him and his image. Have you come to Jesus? There's no access to God's glory apart from him. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So go to him. For so many reasons, but just cry out to him that you might be with God in his glory forever. There's nothing worse, nothing worse than being separated from the special presence of God, that that's special glory. That's what hell is. That's the destiny for those who forsake the glory of God and turn from him. So rather turn to him in faith. But if you have come to the Son, do you see what he has done for you? See what, what you have waiting for you? Do you see what you didn't deserve, but what is yours? Then you, you tell me, what type of a people should you be? Like Israel, you have God's glory among you, but, but so much more. God is with you, Emmanuel. In fact, he's even within you right now, which we'll see next week. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, God's glorious presence among you. Literally, you're the temple that God is dwelling in for those who know him. We are closer to God than ever before, 
and will be with him forever. So, so you, you just tell me, what type of a people ought you be? How should you live before him in this one life before the next? Reflect on and remember the story of God's glory and let it lift your thoughts and your actions and your life up to the next. Father of glory in heaven, we bow before you and and we behold you and your glory as best we can. Though we are so often blind to you and to your glorious presence, you are there, you are with us, and you shine brightly. Expose us, Lord, more and more just to who you are, what you have done, what you will do for us. It's by your grace. It's for your glory. May we just bask in this picture and let it change us. Let it, let it just penetrate us and warm our souls like the, like the rays of the sun, warm our bodies. Help us to see you be changed, be new, and become like you and long for the day when we get to see that glory with our own eyes face to face. Lord, we learn and we will learn to do all things for your glory. It really is the most important thing. It's all there is. Give us a greater vision of yourself. In your name we pray. Amen.